Thank you for joining us for another episode of CryptoCurrent. Just one quick reminder. CryptoCurrent is a cryptocurrency and blockchain education platform that's bridging the gap between the curious newcomers who are just discovering the space and the thought leaders who are shaping its future. All opinions expressed by Richard Carthon, the CryptoCurrent team, and their guests on this show are exclusively their own opinions. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Richard, the team, and their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or to follow his financial advice. This show and any other cryptocurrency production is exclusively for informational purposes. What's going on, everybody? For Cryptocurrent, I'm Stephen Miller, and you're watching The Aftershock, Sure, we bring you the latest news from the world of Web3. And this may be a little bit of a different feel for you this week, because this is our first week moving into just an exclusive news show. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Richard Carthon. Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, man. It's the uh, final day of the month. We're starting to see some green after all this blood for the month in the crypto streets. So feeling a little bit of encouragement, but uh, there, there, there are some things out there which we're going to get into a little bit later that keeps keeps keeping us on our toes. But how are you doing? Yeah, I mean, safe to say it's uh, it's been an interesting last few days in the world of crypto. But altogether, I can't complain. I do want to give our audience a quick update, though, as I just kind of alluded to a few seconds ago. Our show is going to be shifting away from our live stream model, so. In the upcoming weeks, you're going to see that we are now officially moving to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule where we're going to deliver to you brand new interviews with some of the top leaders in the space on Mondays and Fridays. And then on Wednesdays, you're going to have our news show here, which we're going to be leaning into as the aftershock. Of course, don't worry, you will be able to still hear from Chris K. He will be bringing you brand new basic segments in our spin spun out Crypto Decrypted. As always, though, if you're new to joining us here on YouTube, please do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate your participation. Get down in the comments. Let us know what you think of this episode. And otherwise, we're going to be jumping into some of the news. This week is our first week doing these news recaps. So you're going to have to bear with us. It's a little bit of a transition period for us. But we are going to be diving into crypto's big anonymity problem in the latter half of this episode. But before we do that, we need to get into the weekly recap where we bring all of the big topics out from the last week and give you a quick recap of what is to come in the news. And that, of course, is only possible through our news segment, Buy, Sell, or Hoddle. Buy, buy sell, sell, or hodl. Hodl. So in this past week, there were a number of big top stories. But I think the big top story narrative that we wanted to lean into is going to be Bitcoin and that it is still, in fact, making strides despite being in a down market. So there were a couple of big stories that centered around Bitcoin. And the first of which was a, uh, a European Union politician has decided to take his entire salary in Bitcoin. I believe his name is pronounced Christophe de Duquelier. Um, and he is officially the first... Um, EU politician to take his salary in Bitcoin. I don't believe anybody else has yet. 
Um, whereas here in the US, we are already starting to see some politicians take their salaries in Bitcoin. Now, the interesting piece, and I mean, I hail from the great state of Arizona. Um, I was fascinated on Friday to find that Arizona's state legislature is going to be voting on a proposition to make Bitcoin legal tender. Um, no state has ever put up a uh, proposition like this before. So I'm interested to see where that goes into the future. Now, there were three other stories, one of which I know we're going to expand on in a few seconds here, but let's talk about the other two real quick. The IMF, the, Inter the International Monetary Fund, has officially asked El Salvador to drop support for Bitcoin. This is not, I guess, let's just say out of the ordinary for the IMF, considering they like to control all of the international monetary policy. Um, I also don't believe this is the first time they've made said request, but I don't believe El Salvador is going to back down on its support for Bitcoin's legal tender anytime soon. So not much to worry about there. And then of course, we talked about it on the show two weeks ago during a live stream, but Thailand has officially dropped its proposed 15% crypto tax after receiving a lot of pushback from crypto uh, businesses and crypto projects and crypto benefactors in the state. So the final piece on this whole orange coin still making strides um, narrative that we wanted to lean into is the White House making this decision over the weekend that it is officially going to view crypto rules as a matter of national security. Now, Rich, I wanted to lean into this one with you because it seems a little bit like an overreach. Is it fair to say that? Like, it, I'm not necessarily sure that we can call it a matter of national security. But what do you what do you see when you get into this type of story? So, I don't know if I'd say it's an overreach, because when you really get into the core of what Bitcoin is becoming as a potential future of a store of money and potentially a pathway to being the reserve currency of the world. That's a national threat because US dollars is the national currency basically of the world right now. And so if there is a pathway to Bitcoin potentially overcoming the United States as the secure place of storage of funds, I don't know that they'll do anything to completely outlaw it. I think we're, we're past that. I think it's a matter of how do they try to slow it down uh, if they can slash be able to take some of the benefits of the cash flow that's going in that direction. And I think the thing that they're realizing is between what's going on with China with their um, CBDCs, centralized banking, digital currency, and how the digital one is well ahead of the game compared to the rest of the world. And the fact that they put some, legis some legis legislation across that would allow for some big disruptions to come up next year um, as far as how crypto is handled that I think is going to have to be addressed at some point this year. It's not, I don't think too far to left field to call it a national security threat. Um, but I do think that the government could be doing more to get in front of this. I feel like it, they're being pretty passive about it right now. And it's also then making big companies and institutions be a little bit more passive. And the moment that the government slash IRS, everybody else continues to give like clear direction on how they're going to play this, 
you're going to start seeing money absolutely pour into the to the market. I mean, it's curious, right? I mean, I th- I think that you <clears throat> you make a good case for why it is a matter of national security, but for them to make it a matter of national security, I think is just a mechanism for them to say it's urgent enough that we need to issue an executive order as opposed to all of a sudden, you know, finding it urgent in the, you know, the the US Congress to actually push right. forward, you know, meaningful legislation. This is just their way of saying that we don't want the public to view this as an executive overreach by the president in issuing an executive order. Um, that's just the way that I interpret it personally. But I think time will tell. I believe that this news is actually coming down the pipeline um, in the next day or so. And for those that are um, unfamiliar, we are going to be recording these episodes for you um, just before a Wednesday release. So um, this news very well may have already dropped by the time this um, will officially be released. So worth keeping in mind. But let's go ahead and trudge ahead into the non-fungible news of the last week. A couple of really great stories here. Um, the biggest of which is a massive milestone. Another one. Another one for Board Ape Yacht Club whose price floor has officially elevated above the 100 ETH threshold. This, of course, comes on the heels of another celebrity jumping into the game. And that, of course, was none other than Justin Bieber, who decided he wanted to drop 500 Ethereum on one ape. I personally think that was the worst investment of his life. But who am I? Just a humble reporter of the news. (laughs) Another non-fungible piece of news for you. Um... Across 2021, it was actually found in some data review that the top tw- the top 10 NFT traders pocketed approximately $185 million as the market went mainstream. I think that's a really interesting indicator of how you know, fast NFTs have been going off. But at the same time, I think it's needed to under you need to understand that like those top 10 traders really do make up like the vast majority of the money that was made in this market. Um, that gets lost on people a lot. Rich, I want you to take the next story because it is probably the biggest talking point on this um, non-fungible news segment. So why don't you open up this can of worms for us? So OpenSea is reimbursing users after the loophole led to steep NFT losses. So we covered this last week where um, somebody figured out in the code of these smart contracts that at any point, if you had listed on OpenSea to sell something, let's say that you wanted to sell your Board 8 Yacht when you first got it for 2 ETH um, and then decided to take it down, then you moved it to a different wallet and um, you know forgot all about it. And then one day you woke up and it was gone, completely disappeared. So what happened was is this user found out that within a couple of the contracts that if the sale had expired but had never been turned off, you essentially could expose it and purchase it. Uh, now, the question is, is would you consider this a hack or someone who actually read the contract and exposed the contract? So, you know, OpenSea's, the amount of money that OpenSea has made, they're dominating the market. They are breaking records almost every single month. If they didn't make this right, all the more reason why people are going to be jumping to the Coinbase NFT marketplace bandwagon. But the fact that they at least did something about it goes to show that they're trying to show some good faith with the unfortunate situation that happened. Yeah. And 
I think the thing that people don't get, especially when you start interacting with ecosystems like Ethereum and Solana, and even you know, so far as like Polygon as a layer two solution, is that when you interact with something like OpenSea and you sign a contract, most people are doing this interaction blind. Like literally, it's called blind signing. So you're not actually reviewing the contract before you sign it. You're literally just trying to get the fastest mechanism to interact. And in the smart contract that you're agreeing with OpenSea to use, it's a perpetual agreement. It is ongoing so long as that item which you are listing is in your wallet. So I'm definitely happy to see that OpenSea is reimbursing users after this loophole in their contract really screwed over a lot of people. But I think it's even more important to say, number one, like make sure that you are taking the time to delist your assets if you are not going to execute that sale or you want to take it down instead of just transferring it away um, into like a more secure wallet. But beyond that, make sure that if you're playing in the NFT space that you have a hardware wallet because more and more often right now, we're seeing breaches. In fact, just as recent as the last two hours, there was a Bored Ape user who had his wallet compromised, not in a traditional mechanism, but like because a hacker got into his personal computer and managed to secure the seed phrase and get his private key, um, that user lost 550 plus Ethereum in apes and doodles. So we're talking about $1.5 million right there. Mm. And beyond just like you and me sitting here talking like and saying, you know, you hate to see it. It's just proof that like if you have assets, especially NFTs, that you are really, really concerned about and you want to make sure that you're securing them in the long term, regardless of how much they're worth right now. If you believe in that project and you have conviction and you want to hold it, you need to make sure you have a multi-sign wallet set up. And the easiest way to do that is to get a ledger. So make sure you've got a hardware wallet, folks. It's really important. On to the last non-fungible news pieces. YouTube's head of gaming has announced that he will be joining Polygon Studios as its CEO in the coming weeks. This is a really big deal because Polygon Studios is going to be developing and deploying a number of different pay-to-earn games. Um, sorry, play-to-earn games on the Polygon platform. Um, so that's really fascinating to me. That's um, the continuation of Web 2 transitioning into Web 3. And then the last two pieces, of course, Reddit is going to jump on board and develop its own NFT profile picture integration on its platform. That has been developed in the background for a while now. I'm well aware that that is going to be coming to market here in the next couple of weeks, if not the next two months. And then last but not least, I think it's really interesting to see that Fidelity Investments has officially decided that they're going to launch metaverse-specific ETFs. Um, an ETF, as some of you may know, is an, ele an, ex an electronic traded fund. Um, or an exchange traded fund, depending on how you want to view it. And this is not necessarily going to be allowing you to go and buy an ETF that is invested into a number of different metaverse assets. It's going to allow you to invest in a broader portfolio of companies that have metaverse interests. So that means that Fidelity is going to set this up to include things like Nike and McDonald's and... Um, now Verizon, which we'll probably chat about in a later episode. 
But there are a lot of companies now that are starting to jump into the metaverse and they're going to be the ones that Fidelity is going to invest a certain amount into for their ETF upcoming. Lastly, let's jump into the lightning round stories. Rich, let's tear through these really quick and then get into the, our bigger story. So go ahead and take this one away for us. I got you. So first up, we got Solana's multi-day outage causes mass of liquidations. Solana's continue to have, uh, unfortunately, a couple of these woes that they hopefully get figured figured out sooner than later. If not, we could see some other uh, platforms begin to take form. LeBron James partners with Crypto.com to support Web3 education. Kudos to LeBron, always putting education first. Um, Etherscan team launches wallet-to-wallet messaging service called BlockScan Chat. Uh, that could be a lot of fun. I know I'm going to check that out once it is ready to go. Uh, Fendi releases Ledger Collab for fashion-forward crypto wallets. Now, uh, Fendi out here just crushing it. And the fact that they are trying to get into the crypto space, it's just, there's so much great news like this that shows that like, y'all, there, there's way too much that shows we are headed to more bullish times than the bearish month that we've been in. So stuff like this gets me excited. Google Cloud launches digital asset team to assist clients in creating, trading, and launching new products on blockchains. Google's trying to jump on the train too. They're trying to get into these crypto startups. Going to continue. And then finally, we have Grayscale added 25 assets, including Arweave, Cosmos Engine, Helium Spell, and Sandbox to its review list. Um, Some really big names in there, a lot that we've actually covered. Um, The fact that Grayscale is finally expanding outside of just Bitcoin shows that, again, alts are where your big opportunities are going to be. Uh, And there's a lot of really good blue chips still yet to come. So that's our lightning round. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that. Any, any big one that sticks out to you, Steve? The last one is actually a really big deal. <clears throat> and I'll tell you why. Grayscale in the last two or three years has actually expanded its consideration list to include, I believe, 24 other assets. So these are all assets they've not yet launched um, like a Grayscale Bitcoin trust equivalent because Grayscale, of course, also has its Ethereum fund, its Litecoin fund, and a couple others. But this is their way of saying, like, we're considering adding a fund for this specific asset. So in this list, they also just recently removed two names from that list. They removed Bancor Network, and they also removed, I think it was UMA, um, Universal something or other. I can't remember the name of the the token because it's not particularly relevant right now. No offense, UMA. But... When you look at these names being added, it's a really solid indication that they are being deemed safe by the council at Grayscale. The reason that I'm keying in on that is because when they removed Bancor and UMA, the big legal consideration to it is, okay, why would they remove it if they want to be super inclusive of all of these next web like assets? And the reality is, is that most likely the SEC is targeting those two next. That's the that's kind of like the underlying narrative there. But because they're adding more and more assets to this list and it's nearing 50, it's really encouraging to see that they're adding ones that are really, I mean, in a lot of ways, paving the way. Um, so I'm I'm really keen on that last story. But let's go ahead and jump into the bigger part of this show and what is going to become the centerpiece of our Wednesday episodes going forward. And that is the Aftershock segment. 
the aftershock. So if you've been in the Web3 space for a minute, you may know that there are not a lot of people out there that like to have their names known. Um, that, of course, is because in Web3, you have the ability to have a degree of anonymity. Now, why would you want to have anonymity in the first place? Why not just be honest as we are in Web2? Well, because it's not all rainbows and butterflies. In Web2, there is a lot of crime. There's a lot of you know reason that you don't necessarily want all of your identity out there online. But in Web3, people have seen that as the opportunity to kind of pull back on the reins a little bit, protect their families, protect their own you know assets and personal identity features, if you will. And it's led to kind of this catch-22. I mean, you've probably heard of the idea that like, you know, if a job wants you to have expertise um, before you enter that position, you have to answer the question of how am I going to get that expertise if you won't give me the job to be able to learn how to do this job. This is the same sort of catch-22 here in crypto. You can't really necessarily have a perfect situation. And we're starting to see that more and more lately. Um, it was unfortunate news on Thursday. Um, I mean, depending on how you decide to look at it. But multiple sources came out and doxed Wonderland's anonymous treasury manager, um, who basically was operating underneath the name 0xSifu. Um, and again, just to clarify on some things, 0xSifu up until this point, had been running a pretty good operation over there at Wonderland. They'd been moving through a couple different transition um, proposals at the time, and it was seeming to be moving in the right direction. But this individual who they doxxed and took the anonymity away from turned out to be a guy by the name of Michael Patron. Um, he was formerly known as Omar Danani. In 2008, Omar Danani was convicted of felony computer fraud, burglary, grand larceny, and credit card fraud. So it's not really that surprising that he changed his name to Michael Patron in the first place. Because once he got done serving his time and um, dealing with his conviction, become like trying to return to society, he reinvented himself, took on the name Michael Patron, and joined up with a gentleman as a co-founder on a exchange called Quadriga CX, which has now since become defunct. It was a Canadian exchange, and it folded in 2019 after $145 million in client assets disappeared. So this story continues to kind of take turn after turn after turn of negative, painting Michael Patron as this guy who basically has committed a significant amount of crime across his life and he hasn't learned and he hasn't stepped away from those criminal tendencies. But here's where I start to go a little bit sideways on this story, Rich. And I, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about the entire anonymity narrative. But one of the pieces that was just updated recently is that Patron actually left Quadriga CX in 2016, citing fundamental disagreements with his co-founder, the one that is alleged to have stolen that, that $145 million in client assets. So part of me wants to actually believe in the good nature of man and that man is not just inherently evil. But there's a lot of negative pointing here, right? There's a lot of finger pointing saying that this guy is still a criminal at heart, despite the fact that he tried to create something new for himself in the world of cryptocurrency. 
after having served his time and tried to you know reform his behavior. Off of what you've gotten out of this front part of the story, because there's more to this story, is there anything that you immediately, I guess, have concern about? There's a lot of red flags here, man, unfortunately. Um, the first piece of this is you think about the role of the person in your potential organization. And yes, you can have anonymous people or people who, as you come together and decide like, okay, you want to move forward with the venture. But, and do I necessarily believe in people getting second chances? Sure. But when you're dealing with someone who you put in a role that has a history of fraud and they're the treasury of a billion dollar plus organization, it's not a great look. It's, it's just, it's just not a great look. Um, and of the other side of it too is like, okay, well let's say that they genuinely didn't know that this person that you're working with, who you've maybe grew a relationship with for the last several years and um, have been doing pretty good work and all of that. And then ultimately you really still don't know who this person is. I mean, Catfish is a real cat. I mean, there's a reason that MTV Catfish is a show that a lot of people enjoy watching because unfortunately there's people who live lies to service what they're looking for and don't care who they hurt in the process. And in the world of crypto, there is a lot of anonymity and I feel in some scenarios it is valid, it is correct, and is justified. In other scenarios, I don't think there is a future for a lot of true anonymity, right? If you, once you start dealing with millions, billions of dollars and you're one of the heads of an organization, I don't know that it's a good look for the person to be fully anonymous because if, this whole thing turns out to be a rug pull. Not to say that it is, not to say that they can't bounce back, not to say that there's some things that can't be salvaged through all of this. One, we they got lucky that they were able to dox this person and, and get this person figured out. But like, let's say that never happened. And let's say that all of a sudden they, they dipped out. Yeah, they could go after whoever's left holding it, which unfortunately in... Uh, this scenario is going to be Daniele, but like the person who really did all of this just cuts bait and they're free. Like nothing happened. And there's no standard of accountability. And like people want to feel like there has to be some sort of accountability. Even if you are choosing to go through a pseudonym, whatever it is, if, if you do something wrong, you should... There should be consequences. And the two big lessons for me in all of this right now is for those who are creating companies, who are dealing with people who they're meeting through the crypto landscape, et cetera, even though someone literally can seem like the greatest person ever and are doing a lot of forward thinking X, Y, Z, and they might be doing really, like some really good things and you've built a really good relationship with them, 
doesn't mean that you know them. Does not mean that they won't mess you over. Does not mean that they can be fully trusted to help you fully run and operate an organization. Because at the end of the day, they can cut bait. And there's not a whole lot you can do to then try to rectify it. So that's number one. Number two is there has to be a way to protect downside. There has to be a way to hedge against risk, which, you know, we're in a risky business. We, we get that. But like one of the things that shouldn't be risky is your executive team leading the projects. That shouldn't be the risk, right? It should, it should be some other foundational fu- fundamentals or things that you're trying to accomplish. It's not the, that the person who's at the top is ultimately has the capacity to mess everyone over because they can like that. That should be the last thing we're worried about. Right. So man, that's, that's my initial take, but what's yours? The big thing to me is, I mean, you started tapping on it and it's the, we've gotten, I mean, for those of us that have been in it since like 2017, 2018, like you and I, like we, have almost gotten a little bit too complacent in the fact that we've come to accept that some people remain anonymous. And when I look at the bigger narrative here, like this, I think this is actually going to go down as like the, the real linchpin in crypto is no longer going to be accepting of people in project leadership that is going to be anonymous. Like the vast majority of people are going to move away from supporting projects with anonymous leadership. In fact, I have taken a significant step away from that in recent times. But I think that the natural, like the the original reason why people wanted their anonymity online is for protection. So I think that for you know individuals that are choosing to participate in DeFi and to participate as an investor and wanting to grow their personal wealth and have that know, participant label during this massive wealth transference that we're seeing right now. They deserve to stay anonymous because ultimately they're trying to do so as a participant to protect their assets and protect their families and protect themselves because ultimately they don't want to be targeted. But if one of those participants decides to raise their hand on a Tuesday and say, you know what, I want to come up and actually participate in a project, be a leader, and help drive it forward because I stand by the mission. I stand by the vision. I stand by the team that's behind it. That person is going to have to dox themselves. There's no way around that anymore. There just isn't because ultimately, if you are even somebody with just a pure history and you don't have any criminal past or you don't have any negative, negative downsides in your work history, just by going on as an anonymous team member, you are theoretically giving investors more reason to not invest in the project because ultimately they don't know who's behind the curtain. Yep. And that's really concerning. And look, full, I think we owe our listeners a full bit of disclosure here. We are both invested in Wonderland time. We look at this thing from both sides of the picture and we really are trying to give you this perspective not to take anything away from Wonderland time this is really just meant to be a discussion around the anonymity narrative because there are definitely pluses and negatives on both sides. Um, but this story does in fact go on. Um, so I want to make sure that we cover the rest of it so you know the details on it and you're not getting it twisted. 
Um, Wonderland's Daniele Sestigali, who's, of course, the visionary behind Wonderland and um, Spell and Magic Internet Money and now Sushi. He confirmed that he had only known of Michael Patron, formerly known as Zero X Sifu's past, for only one month. I believe him in this because he shared proof of that, that it only came out within the last month and he'd never once questioned that that individual's anonymity before. The team was okay with it. They all agreed to just leave it be because that was the common practice of the internet or at least Web3. But Sestigali announced on Thursday that he was, after all this news came out, that he's in favor of Xerox Sifu stepping down and then he put it to a vote within the community. And the community has since been pretty divided on the path forward. The options, because again, some of them feel betrayed by the fact that Daniele didn't come out about, you know, Sifu's shady past once he found out about it. They wanted these different paths forward. So option one is for those that don't believe in the project anymore, that don't believe in Sestigali's leadership, they could wind down the organization or option two, they could continue to fight for the investment DAO model that they're trying to shift Wonderland to right now. Now, it goes without saying that like there's a lot of pressure on an individual who is in charge of a project that is literally billions of dollars in total value locked, right? When you're dealing with an individual's money that is hard-earned money that is invested, it comes with a lot of pressure. So when this came up, Daniele was pretty transparent about like how the process had been in the day of the reveal and the fact that, you know, Sifu was in fact a ex-con. And he said like, look, there have been no less than 50 threats against my life today on Thursday. I have to imagine those threats continue to roll in, in over the weekend. And the amount of hate that he probably faced online was immense. I'm not trying to downplay the severity of it. It is severe. It is 100% concerning. But I think a lot of this eventually got to him. And I mean, truly, like we are all only humans. Like this stuff eats at you eventually when people are like really pissed off at you. You have to think about these things from the human perspective. We all have, you know, just that, our own perspectives. And despite the community voting to essentially say like, I think it was like 55 to 45 vote to, in favor of saving the project. Um, Daniele made a post on Twitter basically saying like that he's calling for the end of it. We have the, the tweet thread. If you're joining us over on YouTube, you can read the tweet thread on um, screen right now. But to me, I like, I find it really strange the way that the public is actually responding to this. Because if you buy into the promise of Web3 and the evolution of DeFi and DeFi 2.0, you would want him to continue because he's done nothing but prove himself time after time after time so far. So to punish him necessarily for the wrongs of another after they successfully removed Sifu, after they actually gave proof that at no time, no pun intended, at no time was were anybody's funds actually at risk with Sifu at the helm as the treasury manager. 
just and to clarify, the reason why your funds were never at risk is because they were operating on a multi-signature wallet. For any funds to be moved out of treasury, you needed to have signatures from Daniele, Sifu, and I believe it was three other members of the time leadership. So at no, at no moment were those funds at risk held in treasury. I don't understand why people would be so quick to jump ship unless they were just in it without any type of research into the project to begin with. So again, I think there's a lot to unpack here in terms of the overall news story behind it. But I'm not necessarily wanting to focus on that because the bigger discussion and the bigger narrative behind the aftershock that people are talking about right now more than ever is anonymity. What is the lesson that you pull away from it? Where do you think we're headed? So there's two things I want to touch on. First, I can understand why some people might be pissed in the sense of if you're just first getting into crypto, you haven't experienced a 2015, 2017, 2018 pullback where you, you see 80% from all-time high pullbacks, 80 to 90% pullbacks from where you potentially bought in. And you find out that the person that's at the helm of this company organization that you're getting into is potentially, you know, a con person or has a history of fraud or whatever it is. And you're like, well, how did you not do this diligence if you're this you know, person like, and unfortunately, Daniele's having to fall on the sword here. And yes, although this is not completely his fault, he got in bed with this guy. He allowed this person to be part of the top team, to be one of five that own the keys to the treasury. So like it, diligence all the way around wasn't fully done. And this leads back into your big question around anonymity. And I agree with your original statement that for your individual who's participating in crypto and who wants to be an observer and or a participant in the sense that you are investing, uh, communicating, joining the conversations, etc. And you are not trying to um, lead or be the head of companies who are then having a lot of people within their community. Yes, be anonymous. Hang back. But if you are trying to be one of the head people of a multi-million, multi-billion dollar company, there's like, there's no way you shouldn't be doxxed. There's no way people shouldn't know who you are. For myself, this is definitely a learning lesson for, for future companies. Because like, like I, now I'm personally not going to be getting too much involved into companies who exact team is not docs. I'm just not going to do it. And unless the, unless there's like the majority of the people are doxxed and maybe there's one or two and they're like, look, if everything goes wrong, we accept full responsibility and we will make it right and whatever it is. And they're coming out the gates with that, those promises I could consider, but the future of crypto projects and their executive leadership there's no way they can continue to be anonymous after something like this. Yeah, I, I honest, honestly, I like. I mean, we've been over it now. I, I think that I come to the same exact conclusion, and I would challenge every single listener. You know, whether you're joining us here on YouTube or you're listening to this and um, over on your favorite podcast platform, 
the truth is, is that you need to be considering who you're investing in regardless. More often than not, we invest in people before we invest in the actual work. So take the time to understand that if that you know theory holds up and you want to invest in the people that are leading these projects, you have to know who the people are. You have to know what their values are. You need to know what they bring to it from their own experience. Because ultimately, without that, you're investing in an idea. And as much as an idea can have promise, an idea is just an idea until action brings it into our real world. So I'll leave you with this. When you're thinking about the next project that you're going to invest in, whether that is a DeFi play, a metaverse play, an NFT, or whatever, consider the weight of your investment. Are you willing for that investment to go to zero on the back of somebody that you don't know? Or would you rather have that risk lean on somebody who you actually can say, like, I did my diligence. I know who they are. I know what they stood for. I know what they've done. They've executed in the past and I have no reason to believe that they won't execute right now. I would be considering those things. But look, I think that's a, a really good place for us to wrap up this week's Aftershock episode. Again, this is our first episode of doing the Aftershock on Wednesdays. We will be bringing you these segments every Wednesday here forward. We hope you'll join us for them. They're going to be shorter shows, giving you the latest look around the world of Web3. But again, we always have brand new interviews on Mondays and Fridays here on CryptoCurrent. This past Monday, we had Lokesh Rao. Um, join us. Richard sat down with him for an interview. And apparently my dog wants to be interviewed now um, because he's crying in the background. But on Friday, we will have another episode of Cryptocurrents interview show for you. So be looking forward to that. And otherwise, we will see you guys next time. Richard, any final words? Stay Cryptocurrent. We'll see you next time.